Good morning, church. If you believe what you just sang, say amen. amen. Our God is an awesome God. And I hope that our time together this morning, you are going to be reminded of just how awesome He is. Yesterday was not a good day at my house, at least for half of us. I, uh, I went to Texas Tech University during Southwest Conference years. I played on the golf team and had a lot of buddies that were on the football team, I ate at the training table some on occasion. And so the, the two teams that kicked us every year were the University of Texas and the University of Arkansas. And so it became my mantra that my favorite team was whoever's playing Texas and Arkansas. And so when we moved to Oklahoma, it didn't take but that long for me to become a Sooner fan because they played Texas. And so for the last more than 35 years, on the second Saturday in October, I put on red my wife, who is a graduate of the University of Texas Dental Branch in Houston as a dental hygienist, puts on her University of Texas Longhorn jersey. We sit on opposite sides of the house and scream at the television set. Through the years, she has converted one of my grandchildren. Shame on her. Yesterday, grandkids are all over at the house, and my oldest granddaughter, who's almost 16, be 16 a week from today, had on her OU. Her mother had on her OU. My, her younger sister, the 12-year-old, had on a Texas, Texas jersey. The other two little boys, they had on... Oh, you did. Well, it was a not a good afternoon at my house. I'm just saying. So if I have a bad attitude today, you know what the problem is. It's Marsha and I need some counseling this afternoon, but other than that, all's good. Hope you have your Bibles. We open them, please, to the last book in your Bible. It's called the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. This is an easy find. I won't even tell you how to get there, all right? The last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 9 in just a few moments. Nineteen seventy-seven. Jack Hayford and his wife Anna were in England visiting. That summer, it was the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's reign in the British Isles. And he said as they went from town to town, village to village, there were just all kinds of reminders that the queen was on the throne and that this was the 25th anniversary of that occasion. Hayford said he had preached on the text that you and I are going to read together in just a few minutes, not too long before they arrived. And with all of the talk about kingdom and a queen who reign and thrones and royalty and royal families and how giddy the people of England are about their queen, when we in America don't really understand nor appreciate family royalty. But he said as he was driving down the road one day and Anna was sitting at his side, almost said to this side, but I guess over there it'd be on this side. Anna is sitting on his left side as he's driving down the road. 
He said this melody started coming to him as he thought about the, the, the kingdom and reigning and, and how, it, how great it would be if the people of, the, of America would get as excited about our king reigning on a throne as the people of England were about a queen reigning on their throne. And he said this melody started coming to him as he was driving down the road and he started telling Anna the, the lyrics and the melody and she was writing it down. And the result of that drive was the song we sang just a few moments ago, Majesty. Worship His Majesty. I have loved that song since I heard it in the late 70s. And I still love it this morning because it reminds us we serve a king who reigns. And if we could catch a glimpse on occasion of the, of the magic, of the majestic nature of our Savior, it would humble all of us. If we could get as excited about a king who reigns this morning, as the people of England were on the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's reign in England. Church, we could change this community. Revelation is a place where a lot of bad doctrines have been born. Uh, it, is a, it is a shame that a book with such a great message has been so uh, distorted by so many people. So much so that many of us, especially in churches of Christ, kind of avoid this book because it's so full of apocalyptic language and we don't quite know how to deal with it. But this morning, we're going to jump in and tackle a passage in the first chapter of Revelation. The people of Jesus were under incredible persecution. Some would be persecuted even to the point of death. Many, many were. They did unspeakable things to people who said they followed Jesus. Some, they would drag behind chariots until they were dead. Some, they would wrap up in animal skins and cover them in pitch and set them ablaze to light their gardens at night. Some, they would put in the arena only to be torn apart by wild beasts to the glee of crowds who would gather to watch the spectacle. I mean, it was indescribable what they did to people who followed Jesus. And John writes to a, a scattered, broken persecuted church, a message of incredible encouragement. This morning, obviously, I can't know what all is going on in your life. I can't know some of the discouragements and the heartbreaks and the disappointments and the pains that you are going through in your own life. But I have a message this morning from the risen, reigning Christ He's got something to say to you this morning. Let's read together, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom 
and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Now, let's go back. Which John are we talking about? This certainly isn't John the Baptist. He's been dead for upwards of more than 60 years by the time these words are written. Which John is this? Well, this is the John who was a very close disciple of Jesus. Whenever Jesus would take his three closest disciples with him, he would take with him Peter, James, and John. This is the John of which we speak. John is the son of Zebedee. John was was mending nets when Jesus walked by one afternoon and totally changed his life and said, come and follow me. And he dropped his nets and he left his dad and the fishing business only to become a fisherman of men. John wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then this last one book of Revelation. I want you to notice the connection between kingdom and suffering. He says, companion in the suffering and kingdom. Now, I want to tell you something. We in the United States of America don't fully appreciate that, do we? Because for us, kingdom and suffering don't mean much, but there are places on this globe this morning where kingdom and suffering are connected intimately. And so it was in the day John wrote this revelation. For them, kingdom and suffering went together like butter and bread. And the patient endurance, he says, that is ours in Jesus. I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. They had taken him from the church that he had loved with his whole heart. Who used to, he used to sit at the door and greet people as they came in and as they left. And he would say to them as they came and went, he would say to them, little children, love one another. And they had ripped him out of his home and away from the church he loved and had put him in exile on Patmos because of his faith and fellowship of Jesus. And there on the island of Patmos, Jesus comes to him in a vision. It was one of the darkest times in John's life as well as one of the dark times in the church life. And so Jesus comes to him with a message of encouragement. Back many years ago, I got to go to the Bible lands and went to the island of Patmos and stood in a cave that the locals tell you was the very place where John received the vision that has become the revelation. And it was eerie to stand in that cave and to look around its surroundings so simple and realize this was the spot where Jesus came to John and gave him the revelation. We stood there on that dirt, and I felt like we needed to take off our shoes. Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Jesus had told his uh, followers, and he told especially the woman at the well in Samaria, that worship is about worshiping in spirit and truth. 
spirit, that part of me that is created in the image of God, connects with our spirit God based on truth. That's when true worship happens. And John says, I'm in the spirit. I am, I am connecting with God in this spiritual connection on the Lord's day. Now, what day of the week is we ta- are we talking about? Hello? Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's day. So it's a, it's a morning maybe like this morning. And the Bible says, I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. And the voice said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. That'd be a natural thing, wouldn't it? You hear this voice that sounds like a trumpet? And immediately John wheels to see where the voice was coming from. And the Bible says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, down in verse 20, he's going to tell us that those lampstands are representative of the churches. These seven churches to whom the message is going. These seven churches who are suffering persecution. These seven churches whose people are discouraged and fearful of what might be coming. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Jesus claimed this title for himself when he was on the earth. Son of man. It was a designation that he was the Messiah of God. Son of man. Notice how he's dressed. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The robes of the day were robes that came to the knees. The common robe came to the knee. This robe goes all the way to his feet. And there's a golden sash, a golden girdle, a golden wrap, we would call it, around his chest. The robes that went to the to the feet were robes of royalty. A golden sash was what the high priest wore. And it was a reminder that here is our exalted high priest, the kingly one, the one who reigns, wearing robes of royalty that reach to his feet and a golden sash around his chest like the high priest wore. This is our priestly king. His head and hair were like wool, white like wool, as white as snow. Friday night, Marcia and I went to a football game. We were in Midland for 11 years. Midland Christian came over to play Faith, um, Grapevine Faith. We went over to Grapevine to watch the football game, and it wasn't much of a game. It was 41 nothing at the end of the first quarter. First quarter. They hung 41 on them in the first quarter. 
But while we were there, I saw a dear friend of ours whose hair is white like wool. Through the years, his hair has turned absolutely white. Now, what does it mean in this context? Is he referring to Jesus as one who is now aged? Absolutely not. White hair is symbolic of wisdom. The wisdom that would emanate from the ancient of days. And so Jesus is not aged. John is saying about Jesus, he is the timeless one. And his hair, white as wool, white as snow, it says, is that which, which describes a wisdom and a dignity that ought to cause us to catch our breath. The Bible says his eyes were like blazing fire. You've heard the expression in the English language, it looked like he was staring right through me. This is sort of the ancient equivalent of that expression. It's descriptive of one who perceives, who sees things and perceives things that we don't see and perceive. And when you watch Jesus in the Gospels, he's always seeing things and perceiving things that nobody else notices. He sat by the treasury and watched a widow come in one morning and she threw into the treasury two mites, the old King James says, less than two pennies, the NIV says. And he calls his boys over and he says to them, listen, she gave more than everybody else because she gave all she had. How did he know that? On one occasion, as a as a paralytic lay on a mat, he turned to a bunch of critics of his and said, the Bible says he saw what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and take up your mat and walk, but so that you might know the Son of Man has the power or the authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and says, rise, take up your mat and go home. And the, and the man who'd been paralyzed all those years hops to his feet, picks up his mat, and walks out in full view of them all as they all go. <gasps> he saw things. He saw the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. He saw a wee little man who'd climbed up in a tree whose life was empty. He saw more than everybody else saw. And he stopped under the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. We're going to your house today. He saw the crowds, the Bible says, and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. John says, when I saw him, his eyes were like blazing fire. He saw, he understood. Listen, you ever wonder if he sees what's going on in your life? If he sees the injustices that have happened to you? If he sees the abuse that has happened to you? You ever wonder about the things that have touched your life? If he sees, John is reminding us this morning, he sees it all. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. We use an expression that came out of the ancient world. I have feet of what? Clay. Feet of clay. That's an expression that means we're flawed. You know, we've got 
We got faults. We, we, we mess up. I'm a, I'm a person with feet of clay. But when John sees the resurrected Christ, the Bible says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze was the hardest metal they knew of at this moment in time. And he's saying, here is strength. Here is power. Here is purity. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know for sure what that sounds like, but it's got to be something like James Earl Jones. I don't know. I, I just, we went to Brazil. Marsh and I went to Brazil many years ago to visit some missionaries. And uh, they took us to a place called Iguazu Falls. It's, it's the largest waterfall in the world. And they take you to this place, and you get in the boat, and they start the engine, and they start up this river, and it's just dead quiet out in the middle of the jungle, and you don't hear anything except the birds chirping and, the, you know, that sort of noise. And you're, you're just gently going up the river, and the closer you get to the falls, then you start to hear it. And you see this mist that rises hundreds of feet above the jungle. And the closer you get, and finally you round a bend in that boat, and, and, and you hear it, and it's thunderous. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I understand that's pretty amazing as well. That the roar that that water makes as it falls and as it hits into the pool below, the noise it makes it makes at Iguazu Falls is indescribable. And they, they take you that boat right up in the middle of that thing so you're covered in the mist. And you have to shout to each other right next to you to hear a conversation. And John says, this voice I heard sounded like the voice, like a, the voice of running water. This voice spoke and the universe was born, church. This voice spoke in a storm-tossed boat on the Sea of Galilee. This voice spoke in a voice that could be heard by nature itself. And he said, peace, be still. And it obeyed him. The wind stopped and the waves subsided. This voice spoke at a tomb outside Bethany. The Bible says he spoke in a loud voice, Lazarus, come here. And a man who'd been dead four days in the tomb got up and hopped into the entrance of the tomb where he'd been buried. John says, I heard this voice, and it sounded like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And we're going to find out in verse 20, if you will read down that far, these seven stars are representative of the angels, one for each of the seven churches who are receiving this message. And what John is saying to us is, he has, he has the destiny of the church in his right hand. Right hand, the hand of authority. Right hand, the hand of power. The psalmist said, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down on the throne of the right hand of the throne of God. It's a symbol of authority and power. And it says, I've got you right here in my hands. 
Let me remind you of something. This is not your church. It's His. This is not your congregation. It's His. And about the time you start getting concerned about things and the direction they're going and, and, and you start worrying over things, you need to be reminded that Jesus stands in the midst of the church and says, hey, I've got this. I've got this. And out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. The sword in the ancient world was an instrument of judgment. James was put to death. John's brother, James, was put to death by the sword. And it's a reminder that when Jesus came the first time, he came for redemption. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. When he comes a second time, He'll come to execute his judgment on those who have rejected his grace offer, his love, his forgiveness. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Later in the Revelation, it's going to describe heaven. There's no need of of, of light there because he himself is its light. John is reminding us of the purity and the righteousness and the holiness of the one who reigns, even our king. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. What other response, church, could you make but to fall at his feet as though dead? And he placed his right hand on me. He's close enough, church, to put his right hand on us. The hand of authority, the the hand of power. He's close enough to your circumstance and your situation to put his hand on you. And here's the message that he gives John. We talked about this last week. The most popular command God gives His people, Old and New Testament, is what? Come on. Do not be afraid. And He says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Boy, nice sermon, preacher. Now let's pray and go home. As Corso says on game day, not so fast. What is the message that Jesus is trying to give to John and to a discouraged, broken, persecuted church? And what is it, what is the message for us this morning? I mean, what does all of that mean, this this vision of this reigning king? What does that have to do with you and your life? Well, I'll tell you, if you and I could sit down in your living room across a coffee table and I could lean across that coffee table, here's what I'd tell you this means. 
Our risen king is close enough to you to know what you're going through. And in the darkest moments of your life, he is there to say to you, do not be afraid. I've got this. To those of you who may be moms of toddlers and you chased them all week long and and you're so fatigued, you can't remember the last night you got a really good night's sleep and you're thinking, I don't know that I can go through another week like the one I went through last week. He says to you this morning, I know what you're going through. I got this. And for those of you whose business or career or job has turned south and you didn't see it coming, and the stress that the financial situation in your life has put on you is indescribable. It's affecting just about every relationship you have. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? He comes this morning and stands in your midst and says, don't be afraid. I've got this. For those of you whose marriage is really struggling and maybe no one in this room knows it except you and him or you and her, and it seems she's not listening to how you really feel about your marriage or he's not getting it, he doesn't understand, and maybe you have to make a a drive-by on your own house at night to talk yourself into driving up in the driveway and walking in the door, and you're standing here feeling hopeless and helpless about your marriage he stands in the midst of, the, of us this morning and he says to you, don't be afraid. I got this. I'm working in ways you can't see. But stop fearing. I am your king. And I got this. For those of you who are facing horrible illnesses and diseases, one that might eventually take your life, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades says to you this morning, don't be afraid, stop fearing, I am your king, I got this. That's what this message says to me. Church, Be encouraged. We serve a reigning king who sits on the throne and who's close enough to put his right hand on us. And his message is, stop fearing. I'm your king. I've got this. And the church said, let's pray together. Father God, I can't know what's going on in the lives of all these great people, but God, you know everything about them. You know their concerns. You know their disappointments. You know their pains. You know that their their struggles. You know everything that's going on in their lives. God, I pray you might speak to their hearts this morning, that they might hear distinctly the message that you bring to us today. Stop fearing. I am your king. I got this. I'm working in ways you can't see nor understand. God, I pray you'll help us catch a glimpse this morning of his majesty. 
And we'll bow down in full confident faith knowing He is with us and He cares for us. And He'll see us through whatever life brings us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship His majesty, shall we? Mm